That's good news. Lots of things may fall around us. Lots of things may fall apart in our own lives. But we who are in Christ stand forgiven at the cross. Amen? Well, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, if you're using a pew Bible and don't know how to navigate it, that's on page 948 of that pew Bible. Uh, I, these are the books that I meant to bring last week with me. The gospel comes with a house key. I still have two copies. I am glad to hand those to you if you're willing to read them. Uh, several people had taken this book, one-to-one Bible reading, a few weeks ago. Maybe you remember that. If you didn't get one, but you wanted one, we had uh, double ordered. So I have these. I'm glad to give these away if you are willing to read it and willing to give it a try with a friend, all right? One-to-one Bible reading. So uh, those will be up here after the service. Romans chapter 14, before we read the text, just consider a few statements, will you? Just giving various viewpoints on things. Well, of course... Christians can consume alcohol in moderation. To think otherwise is to be legalistic. Of course Christians can't drink alcohol at all. That's the way of the world, and those who drink even in moderation need a stronger moral compass. Can you believe some people treat Sunday like it's a new Sabbath? They won't watch sports or movies, probably won't even use their fire pits. It's like they're Pharisees or something. Can you believe some people treat Sunday like any other day? Oh, sure, they call it the Lord's Day, but after church, they go straight to the game, straight to the cable news marathon, straight to the golf course. They're just back to the world when this should be a day set aside for God. Those who send their children to public schools obviously care nothing for their souls. Those who send their kids to Christian school are just hiding their kids in a bubble and aren't preparing their children for the real world. Those who homeschool obviously don't care about the socialization of their children or the high standard of education they should hold to. I can't believe this church uses drums and electric guitars, and sings those modern songs. Oh, sure, they're singing praise, but they're just putting on a show. I can't believe this church only uses piano and organ and sings those ancient songs. Sure, they're all singing praise, but they're just holding on to tradition for tradition's sake. The church obviously doesn't care about the discipleship of children. They separate the children from their parents for teaching when families should be together. 
This church obviously doesn't care about the discipleship of children. They don't separate the children to teach them separately from the adults. Kids simply learn differently than adults do. There are more, but you get the idea, don't you? Statements about differences Christians have. But these particular statements, I hope you heard it. I tried to make it clear. These aren't just statements of differences. These are statements of differences with a hint of judgment in each one of them. You know about those people. But to live together as a church, as God intends... We need to wrestle seriously with how to rightly live together while having such differences, and the Apostle Paul will help us here. Let's read together Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 13. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the other person, while the weak person, eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself." For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of, God, of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now the section goes on, but our focus will be on these verses. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word. We recognize coming to it that we come to an inerrant word, a word that contains no errors, an infallible word that will never lead us astray, a sufficient word that tells us all that we need for life and godliness. A word that is sweet to our souls as honey is to our tongues. And so we pray you will open our ears and open our hearts 
to hear and heed your word. I pray that those who trust in you will be strengthened in their faith through the teaching of your word by your Holy Spirit. That those who don't know Jesus Christ, that you will bring conviction of sin, that you will give grace that they might turn to him and trust in him to save them. We pray in his name. Amen. The first 11 chapters of Romans walk us through the majesty of what God has done for us in Christ. And I'm going to give it to you in a minute. It takes longer than a minute to read those chapters. The world is condemned in its sin and its rebellion against God. But God, in His great grace, has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to make the way of salvation. He satisfied the wrath of God on the cross so that we could be counted righteous. And all who turn to Christ in faith, turn from sin and to Christ, are justified. They're forgiven of sin and made righteous in the sight of God. And Romans 5 says we have peace with God. But even though we're at peace with God now, we're still at war with sin. So Romans 6 and 7 tells us this war goes on, but Romans 8 reminds us that no matter how fierce the battle is, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we will never be condemned and we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ. And this gospel, this salvation, Romans 9 to 11, is for all, the entire world, Jew and Gentile. That is the message of the gospel, summed up in a minute of what Paul writes in 11 chapters. It is the only good news, truly good news, that exists in the world today. No matter how bad the news gets, there is always this good news. No matter how good the news seems to get, this is the only good news that lasts. You ever notice that? Good news is temporary anyway. Good news is temporary. The newscast for a long time, I don't watch the local news anymore, but the newscast for a long time, they tell you like story after story of of murder and robbery and corruption and injustice and all these things. And at the very end, they take the last two and a half minutes to tell the story of a child who had a lemonade stand because they wanted to change the world. Because they want you to tune in the next night to see if there's something else good. But even the best of news is temporary, except for this good news. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not embraced this good news, I would plead with you to do so. If you're looking for other news, something better, you'll never find it. You'll never find it. Jesus Christ is the only hope for the human soul. Then in chapter 12, Paul takes a turn. He starts to talk about what it looks like to live in light of this gospel, in light of what God has done for us in Christ, to live a transformed life. Part of that and the, the, the foundation of it is to live within, the, within a community of transformed people, the church. 
And in the church, you see, there are people all along the spectrum of, of spiritual growth. There are new Christians. There are younger, immature Christians. There are more mature Christians. But both belong to the same church, you see. You see, and if you were to go down the street of Rome, you wouldn't look to the right and you see, oh, over there is Strong Baptist Church. And across the street from it is Weak Baptist Church. That's not how it works. There was the church. And it was full of people both strong and weak. And Paul tells them how they ought to live together, so it is good that we heed his words given by the Spirit so that we know how to live together. First of all, Paul recognizes that there are acceptable differences between the believers in Rome. Now, we're not talking about um, all kinds of differences that we would all say are acceptable, socioeconomic differences, ethnic differences, Jew and Gentile together. All of those things are true. Those just aren't the differences that he is focusing on in this text. These are what we would call matters of conscience, where there is no clear word from God that an action is sinful or not sinful. But still, our conscience convicts us about these things. We have convictions about them, and we act according to them. And what's happening in that church, as in every church since then, is that people are coming to different conclusions on these matters of conscience, on these acceptable differences. Now, to be clear, there are some differences in the church that are simply unacceptable. Okay? For example, a different view of the gospel of Jesus is unacceptable in the church. Who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, what it takes to be made right with God, we must not differ on this. In fact, Paul goes so far in Galatians 1 as to say, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's how seriously Paul takes this, and we should too. Also, differences regarding biblical truth and morality. You see, where the Bible speaks clearly, we are to submit fully. Because to differ on those things is not simply to be at odds with one another, it's to be at odds with God Himself. So you see, we're not permitted to define marriage or human sexuality or love or grace or mercy in our own terms, because God has told us what these things are. We are not allowed to say, oh, well, in your circumstance, adultery is permissible. But over here, for me, it's not permissible, and we can just get along. No, 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 no. Where God has spoken clearly, we must not introduce confusion. Where God commands obedience, we must not seek to make exceptions. But neither of those is what Paul's talking about in Romans 14. He's talking about acceptable differences, all right? First, there are differences. Let's look at the differences. Verse 2 one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Now, when Paul talks about those who are weak in faith, he's not saying that their trust in the Lord is weak. There's actually a definite article before the word faith here. So what he's saying is they are weak in the faith. They are weak in their understanding of the faith. All right? And these weak Christians have particular convictions about their diet and about the calendar. So imagine a Gentile, a new Gentile Christian who grew up his whole life sacrificing animals to idols and then eating the meat as part of the worship of that idol. And he comes to Christ and he wants to get as far away from idolatry as possible. He can't imagine any meat crossing his lips ever again because in his mind it's associated with idolatry. Imagine a Jewish Christian who's grown up with this calendar of festivals and days and special things all year, every year, and comes to Christ and has a genuinely heart. He just can't let that go. Not because he thinks it makes him right with God, but in Christ, all these things have so much more meaning to me now. They point me to Jesus. Why wouldn't I celebrate them? So they have these convictions. And then there are Christians who are stronger in their understanding, who, when it comes to food, agree with what Paul says in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But Paul wasn't the first one to say that. Actually, Jesus was in Mark chapter 7. He says this to his disciples. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart? but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus, and then Mark adds this little editorial comment, thus he, meaning Jesus, declared all foods clean. These who are stronger in understanding also know that the Lord doesn't require the observation of any of those Old Testament special days or festivals. It doesn't God doesn't command us to actually celebrate special holidays at all. Now, you're commanded to honor your father and mother, but there is no biblical command to set aside a particular day of the year to do that. Mother's Day was not founded when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. That wasn't, that wasn't commandment number 11, you see. <laughs> Neither is Father's Day. Paul tells us to give thanks in all circumstances, but you know what's never commanded? that we get together and stuff our faces and watch football and call it Thanksgiving. It's not commanded. But you're thankful for the day off work, aren't you? (laughs) The incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming human, taking on human flesh, is absolutely essential to our understanding of the gospel. But do you know what's not commanded? A particular day to celebrate it. Christmas. Boy, I mean, you really cross the line from preaching in the Midland when you start saying things like that. But it's true. Every Sunday when we show up here to worship the Lord, we commemorate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because we meet on the first day of the week. There is no command that we set aside one of those particular Lord's days 
as resurrection day on our calendars. Now, does it mean it's wrong to celebrate Christmas? No. Does it mean it's wrong to set aside in the spring, Easter, as to remember the resurrection in particular? No. Does it mean you ought not to get your mother a Mother's Day card? No. No. All right, everybody, everybody got that clear. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the Bible doesn't command it. But some people are quite convinced that you have to do these things. In fact, they would lop in patri- every patriotic holiday on the calendar as necessary for the church to do something special to commemorate that thing. They must. If we read our New Testament carefully, we'll see that's not the case. There are these differences, though, aren't there? There are these differences. And these particular differences are acceptable, this eating or not eating, this esteeming one day as better than another. I mean, the fact that there are differences, we all know that, right? We all know that instinctively. But to say that some of these differences are acceptable, that's just another thing altogether. Because don't we all walk around thinking, I'm pretty sure that I've got this thing right. I'm pretty sure I've got this down. And the people who are different than me, well, they're just wrong. They can be as wrong as they want to. Well, it is interesting that both in Galatians and in Colossians, Paul deals with these kinds of things, but he's not as lenient there as he is here. In fact, he condemns the refusal to eat. He condemns the celebrating of days because in those cases, the refusal to eat or the celebration of days was attached on as necessary to be a true Christian. It was a twisting of the gospel. People were going around saying, you have to refuse to eat this, or you have to celebrate this if you're really going to be right with God. And that's what Paul won't stand for. But that's not what's happening in Rome. Nobody's twisting the gospel in that way. So Paul doesn't actually condemn either position. In fact, Paul says that the lordship of Jesus Christ is revealed in both those who eat and those who don't eat, in those who celebrate the day and in those who don't celebrate the day. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while he who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived. It's in that order on purpose. He died and rose again. That he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. What Paul's saying is, the one who is celebrating the festivals is doing it for the Lord, to honor the Lord. The one who is eating all foods because they are clean, been declared clean, is doing it for the Lord. The one who refuses to eat the meat is doing it for the Lord. The one who sees all days alike does it for the Lord, for the Lord, for the Lord. That's the the theme there. 
Because none of us lives to himself. You notice that? He says none of us. He doesn't say some of us don't live for ourselves. He said none of us do. No matter where you are in these differences. That's why they're acceptable, you see. They're not violations of biblical morality. They're not add-ons to the gospel. These are Christians at their, at their level of understanding seeking to honor the Lord. Now, of course, let us be clear. The weak should grow into the strong, right? That is how things work. As the Bible is taught, our understanding should grow. We should get more spiritually mature. I mean, that's what God does for each of us. But we have to realize that such growth is not uniform. We don't all make progress at the same pace in understanding and in this life. But even if, let me just pose a question for you. Even if one remains weak for their whole lives, okay, they're observing every festival, they're not eating the meat, they are, they are weak in their understanding their whole lives. They are weak in the faith their whole lives. Do you know what they are in the end? In the faith. In Christ. You see, because the, your salvation is not based on the strength of your understanding. It is based on the strength of your Savior. It is not the quality of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith who saves you. That's why these are acceptable differences. These folks aren't weak. The weak in the faith are not calling things that are sinful not sinful. They are not saying disregard the commands of God. The statements I made at the beginning of, uh, of the message, they represent areas of acceptable difference. The moderate use of alcohol, how we deal with the Lord's Day, schooling choices for our children, and all the rest. And I don't mean to actually assign the label of strong and weak to every single one of those differences because I don't think it fits properly with all of them. I think in some of them I'd have to know why the person wants to do what they're doing in order to know whether the understanding is strong or not. But there are these areas of acceptable difference where we're not adding to or taking away from the gospel or twisting biblical morality. Okay? Acceptable differences. But moving on, in the face of these acceptable differences, what Paul notes is, secondly, the wrong response. The wrong response. And the wrong response to these acceptable differences is passing judgment. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 4 is really strong, isn't it? Who are you? Is that other Christian your servant? Have they been entrusted to you to evaluate their lives? Have you died for them? Have you given them spiritual life? 
Are you the speaker of the commands? Are you the judge, jury, and sentencer for every Christian around you? Well, now, friends, if we were to read social media, some of us would have to think, yes, we are. Of course I am. I am the conscience for all people on these matters. But Paul says, who are you? Are you able to make them stand on the last day? No. The Lord who will make them stand on the last day, that's who they answer to. So it is the wrong response to pass judgment. The weak passing judgment on the strong, condemning them, criticizing them because they're not strict enough in these areas of eating and celebrating days and whatnot. It's just wrong. The strong despising the weak, treating them with contempt because they just won't get with it and grow up and embrace the freedom we have in Christ. Now, to be clear, there are times when Christians are called upon to make judgments. All right? We've got to be clear on that. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls the church to deal with a man who is who is neck deep in heinous sexual sin and will simply not repent. And Paul says, I've already pronounced judgment on them. And you need to do the same. You need to remove them and not associate with them. And he says, I'm not talking about everybody in the world. I'm talking about those who claim to be Christians and clearly violate the Scriptures. That's why he says this. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Isn't that interesting? So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says you're supposed to judge the people inside the church. In Romans 14, he says you're not supposed to judge the people inside the church. Now, if you only take a passing glance at that, you might think that Paul is contradicting himself, and thus God is contradicting himself. But that's not actually the case. Because where we are called to exercise judgment... Those are the areas where we are not free to differ. We are not free to differ from God. You see, in areas where some particular action is clearly called sin by God, God has already made the judgment. He has already said wrong. And the church's responsibility is simply to say what God says about whatever that thing is. So when God says, this is wrong, this is how you respond to what is wrong, the church says, yes, Lord, this is wrong, this is how we will respond to what is wrong. That is the proper response. But in these matters of conscience, you see, that's that's 1 Corinthians 5, when you get to Romans 14, in these acceptable differences where God hasn't clearly called one thing sin, He hasn't said it's sinful to not eat meat. He hasn't said it's sinful to do it. He hasn't said it's sinful to observe days, and he hasn't said it's sinful to see every day the same. In those kinds of cases, do you know the only authority we're left with to judge? Mine. I'm the only authority left to judge. If God hasn't made a judgment, he hasn't made it clear that one thing is wrong and one is not in this particular case. Well, then I'll just come along. I'll take the gavel, Lord. Let me bang it and let me declare what is right and wrong. 
But that kind of thing is out of our league. (laughs) It is above our pay grade. We do not have the prerogative to take the gavel from God and make judgments that He has not made. And even with those outside the church in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, God will judge those outside. God will do it. No, these matters of conscience are left to the realm of God because God doesn't only examine the action, He examines the heart of the one acting. Because it may be perfectly permissible for you to eat meat. But if you think that's because you can do whatever you want and commandments don't matter, you see the heart of that is rebellion, even though there's not a commandment. That's why later on in, uh, where is it, verse, uh, well, the end of verse 14, he said, Paul says, I know and am persuaded that, that nothing is unclean, but it is unclean to the one who thinks it unclean. If you even think it's wrong and you do it, it is sinful. You cannot violate your conscience. You can't do it. Because it's no longer about the commands anymore. It's about the heart, whether the heart is a submissive heart or a rebellious heart. But Paul's not actually writing, I don't think, as a matter of theory. He's he's writing about a real problem. That's why I included verse 13 here. Look at verse 13 again. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. The word for not any longer there in the Greek is meketi. Meketi. Everywhere else it's used, it describes something. When it says something is no longer, it's something that was happening at one point. So, with the woman caught in adultery in John 8, Jesus uses the word. He says, go and from now on sin no more. Meaning, you were sinning. Stop it. Again, 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells his his, uh, young friend, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy had been only drinking water, and now Paul says, No longer. So here in Romans 14, passing judgment has already begun. Christians are looking down their noses at one another. They're talking in hushed tones in the foyer, you know, about those people. They're writing blog posts without mentioning them by name. They're submitting prayer requests in their small group about them. They're posting articles on Facebook exposing the obvious fallacy of those other people. You know what Paul says? Stop it. Just stop. No longer. It is not your place. Who are you? Who are you to do such things? Stop. Because God has the last word. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why are you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I lived, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Each of us will stand before God and give account. 
So where we differ, where those differences are acceptable, we should actually just be focused on honoring the Lord ourselves in those areas of life. Or again, in verse 13, he says, when he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. It's interesting, Paul uses the same Greek verb in both halves of that verse. He says, pass judgment on the one side, and he says, decide on the other, but it's the same word. So in other words, instead of judging other people, instead of putting their lives under the microscope of your scrutiny, put yourself under the microscope. Make sure you don't hinder others. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, don't cause one of my little ones to stumble. It would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be tossed into the sea than to cause one of my little ones to stumble. Don't you do it. Don't you do it by your contempt. Don't do it by passing judgment. And don't do it by flaunting your freedom. That's what he's going to go on to say, but we don't have time to get to it. Don't pass judgment. That's the wrong response. But what are we to do when we face those who differ from us in matters of conscience in these acceptable ways? What is, thirdly, the right response? I have to tell you a story very quickly. The very first membership class that I taught at this church, it was back here in this, in this music room. And it was, it was, at that point, it was a four-week class. Right now, it's six weeks. If you're thinking about going through the membership class, you better hurry. It may get longer soon. All right? But it was only a four-week class. And so we, would, we, we went in, and I was talking about these matters of conscience, and Romans 14 in particular. And the, you know, the kind of the Baptist bugaboo of whether, you know, you can consume alcohol in moderation or not, and whether there's freedom to do that. And so we, we talked some about what total abstinence versus moderate use and uh, just both of those things. And one of the ladies, I'll never forget, I won't tell you her name, but she wrote, raised her hand and she said, this is what she asked, wouldn't it just be easier if we made a rule about whether you can use alcohol or not? That's a good question. My answer was, Maybe. But isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't do that? Here he has people eating meat and not eating meat. Here he has people observing days and not observing days. And he doesn't lay out the rules for them. Laying out more rules to follow is not the right response, Paul says. Verse 1, As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Receive him, accept him, embrace him, put your arm around him. He doesn't finish there. But not to quarrel over opinions. Don't welcome him so you can take him aside and show him everything he's ever thought that's wrong. Don't go into why she obviously knows very little about the faith. And maybe in time you'll mature. Would you like me to help you? My guess is the answer would be, don't call me, I'll call you. Walk together. 
worship together, serve Christ together, or in Paul's words from Romans 12, love one another out of brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Welcome him. And this isn't just a formal welcome. Paul's not just talking about church membership. And the reason why I think that is because welcoming is set up against what he says to stop doing. Don't despise them. Don't pass judgment on them. Instead, welcome them. So it's not just some formality here. This is an attitude that we are to seek. Those who are strong should see the one weak in understanding as a brother, as a sister. Not as less than, not as maybe one day they'll really become a good Christian, but as part of the family. I, I, my birth mother died when I was five, and my dad was a single dad for about four years, and then uh, he married again. And in time, uh, I attained two more siblings, a sister and a brother. So I have two brothers and a sister. My youngest brother, Jeremy, who, thank you for those of you who've been praying for him, he is uh, 31 years old. All right? So there's quite a bit of distance. So imagine, as an 18-year-old, uh, you know, my, my youngest brother is like four, and I'm leaving the house to go to college. Now, can you imagine me looking at my four-year-old brother and saying, Bud, one day you'll actually be part of this family. If you'll just grow up and take some responsibility and learn and start doing the dishes so I don't have to do everything, then you'll really be part of the family. How ridiculous is that? Apparently, the weak in my family are still in my family. And yes, little Jeremy needs to learn how to do the dishes. Probably still does. But he's still in the family, you see. I don't treat him with contempt because he's four. I'm patient and loving and helpful. And we can't do that. We have to see one another as genuine brothers and sisters. Why? The end of verse 3. This is so crucial. For God has welcomed him. Don't despise. Don't pass judgment. Welcome him. Why? Because God has welcomed him. Friends, we have not been welcomed by God because we're strong or because we somehow live up to His standard. We've been welcomed on the basis of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and His merit alone through faith in Him. Just yesterday, this quote came across uh, my eye, and I will share it with you. I have no idea where Spurgeon said it. It's not on the screens. Uh, if the Lord Jesus Christ can put up with you, you ought to put up with anybody. How true is that? And actually, Paul's standard is a bit higher than Spurgeon's. We don't just put up with one another. We don't just tolerate being around each other. We welcome. I don't think Spurgeon would say we don't welcome. I'm just saying you take a quote out of context, you get what you get, all right? We welcome. When we don't, when we require more of one another than God requires of us to really be in, to really feel welcome... 
then we are standing on dangerous and shaky and uncertain ground. John Murray said this, If God has received a person into the bond of his love and fellowship, and if the conduct in question is no bar to God's acceptance, it is iniquity for us to condemn that which God approves. By doing so, we presume to be holier than God. If God has welcomed them in Christ, and I refuse, then I am making myself out to be holier than God, with higher standards than God. Oh, friend, may we never be guilty of that. The response of Christians to Christian living in the church family is to welcome one another, whether weak or strong. It's Paul's main point here. Welcome one another as God has welcomed you. And we do it for God's glory. Chapter 15, verses 5 to 7, and then we'll pray. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh God, would you give us grace to glorify you in this way? to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, as you have welcomed us in Christ. I pray that you will bring conviction where we have set ourselves up as a higher standard for Christian fellowship than you do. Help us to not presume that we are holier than you in receiving those who are weak in the faith. Keep us from the false notion that no differences matter. God, keep us convicted that some differences matter deeply, differences in the gospel, because there is no other gospel. Differences in your morality, your truth, your way of thinking. Help us to never deviate from these. Help us to never differ with you on these things. But give us grace where you have not pronounced a clear judgment. Give us grace to welcome one another, to not show contempt, to not pass judgment but to trust that you will receive the full account on the last day and that you will have the last word on our lives. And we pray, God, that where we are weak in our understanding, that you will strengthen us, that you will help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Father, with great sincerity, I pray that you would bring those who are weak in the faith to this congregation. Bring those who are new to the faith. Bring those coming into the faith. That we might seek to all together with one voice glorify you and welcome one another. We pray you would bring both strong and weak. We pray that you would save those who are dead in their sin, who aren't even weak in the faith. God, make us a congregation who welcomes one another because you have welcomed us. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.